0: Well, Welcome everyone to lesson number seven of eight in our series, When Trouble Comes. I invite you to page number 13 in your notes, and you can find those notes by hitting the class notebook button that's at the bottom of your media player. And as you see at the top of the page, we're in a section called the purposes of suffering. We've looked at the inward direction of suffering and the forward direction, and today we're going to look at the outward direction of suffering which deals with how God intends to use our suffering outside of ourselves, in the lives of other people. So God has a number of purposes that he accomplishes in allowing suffering into our lives, and one category of those is the outward direction, God using our suffering in the lives of others. Now that suffering can be of any sort. We've seen from James chapter 1 and verse 2, It says, My brothers and sisters, consider it pure joy whenever you fall into trials of various kinds. And notice that phrase, of various kinds. I noted a few weeks back that various kinds of trials means that they come in all shapes and sizes. Sometimes they're a situation, a circumstance, and sometimes they have a name attached to them. Your trial is a person. Your trial is a boss. Your trial is a child or a spouse. So trials are circumstantial, things like illness, financial problems, trying to find a job, but also relational. We have people who try us. Now, please, dear friends, then consider the fact that what we're talking about here applies to every one of us because every one of us has gone through, is going through, or will go through something that fits into one of those two categories. I have an adverse situation or I've got an adverse person or persons, or perhaps I have both, and maybe more than one in each category. These trials of various kinds are therefore ubiquitous. They're everywhere, and they involve every one of us. So your situation or your person fits into this category of suffering, and God seeks to use that person or that situation in a number of ways, one of which is an outward direction you having influence outside of yourself on others. Now at the top of page 13, you see the example we have under God desiring to build his kingdom, and it's the missionary's loss. It's about a missionary who, along with his wife and child, had labored for many years with very meager results for their ministry. And then an accident occurred in which the missionary lost both his wife and his child at the same time. So here's a man who had been laboring in obscurity and without any visible results for many years, and now on top of that he's lost his wife and his child. But he kept serving, all the while contemplating what the Lord would have for him in the near and the long-term future, when he began to see an uptick, some interest in the work that he had started on the mission field, and he didn't know what caused it. So he asked one of the locals, Why suddenly, after all of these years, are a number of you interested in me and the work that I'm doing here? This local said to him, we've watched you quietly and regularly as you have, with a sense of hope and confidence, worked through this trial that you're going through. And then he said this, we don't understand your religion, but we like the way you bury your dead. The way this missionary was handling his ordeal had an outward effect on the people around him. Unbeknownst to him, they were watching very carefully, and now they had an interest in him and his message that they had not had before. On page 13, we say in the summary that the furtherance of the gospel was the heart's passion of Paul's life. Suffering not only provided an opportunity to advance the gospel, but also to advance his soul. Suffering has an impact on others. Through hardships, our souls are revived, as we watch others come to Christ by seeing the hope and joy in our lives amidst the pain. We see this played out in Paul's life in Philippians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Philippians, which is a letter that he sent to the church that's located in the city of Philippi, a church that Paul himself had planted years earlier. He's now writing back to them, and he's seeking to encourage them. Now, the circumstances under which he writes the four chapters of this letter are extremely important because he's writing to encourage them when, in fact, he himself is in a very difficult situation. As he writes Philippians, he is under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman guard. He's under house arrest because of nothing other than preaching the gospel. Now, friends, think about that. When you and I are being treated unjustly, what is our first thought? Well, it's to kill the person who's unjustly treating you, mistreating you. You say, now, pastor, murder's wrong, so I would just maim them. But seriously, we're tempted to want some manner of ill-treatment and retaliation to those who are mistreating us. And yet Paul's reaction is quite different. He finds himself in prison, and yet he's not thinking about himself, and he's not plotting how he can get back at his tormentors. He's thinking about how he can minister, how he can serve, He wrote the letter of Philippians for the very purpose of encouraging those to whom he is writing, those back in Philippi. You would think he's the guy who needs the encouragement, but instead he's writing this in order to encourage them. He says in chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So at the very beginning of the letter, he says, in effect, my thoughts and my prayers while I'm in this situation are for and with you, and I want to encourage you that the work that God has begun in you, God finishes what he starts. And then he begins to tell them, don't worry about me, I'm good. And here's the reason I'm good. Because God is already using this adverse circumstance in the lives of other people. There's an outward purpose that's clearly being served by what God is allowing here. And we see that in verse 12 of Philippians 1. That verse says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now I want you to know this. Why does he want them to know this? because he doesn't want them worrying about him. I want you to know that I'm good, and I want you to know that the situation I'm in is actually already clearly working out for God's purpose, namely the advance of the gospel. Now when he says this is happening for the advance of the gospel, that word advance is a translation of a Greek word. You'll remember that your New Testament was originally written in Greek, and the Greek word that's translated advance in verse 12 is a military term, and it was used of a group of military personnel who would go in advance of an army and would clear out a pathway for their mission. They would clear away brush and any other obstacles that were in the way of the other soldiers. And so in verse 12, Paul is saying this, what has happened to me has really served to clear away obstacles that otherwise existed, to clear away brush that kept me from being able to get the gospel to particular people. Now, who were these particular people? Well, verse 13 says, As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So this difficulty has allowed me access, removed obstacles to access that I otherwise would not have had, access to the palace guard because I'm in chains, I'm captive. But really, in Paul's mind, he's not the one who's captive. They're the ones who are captive. He's thinking, they can't let me go, which means they have to listen to me, which means that as a result, all of these people are hearing the gospel. They've come to learn through me that the reason that I'm in chains is because of. It's for Christ. So in this circumstance, I, Paul, am looking at an opportunity that God has opened up, that God has cleared a way for me to give the gospel. So don't worry about me. This is advancing the mission, and the mission is what I'm all about. Now, what about you? If you're in a hospital bed, can you do that? Think about it. You've got the housekeeper who comes in. You've got the nurse that comes in. You've got the doctor who comes in. And who's the captive here? You or them? Well, you've got all kinds of people that God is bringing you in contact with, which may give you open doors of conversation that lead to the gospel. We need to think about our circumstances that way. Instead of immediately thinking, oh me, or why did they do this to me, or why is God doing this to me? Ask yourself, who is God bringing into my circle of influence through this that can advance the cause of the gospel? And that's what Paul is doing here. Not only was this outward direction being served for unbelievers who were in the palace guard, but then it goes on to say in verse 14, Quote, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord, and they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So it not only is having effect on the unbelievers who have to listen to Paul give the gospel and explain why he does what he does and why he's devoted to Christ as he is, it's not only that, it's that the brothers and sisters, those who already believe in Christ, are more emboldened now because of the example of Paul because of his example they're encouraged to speak the Word of God more courageously and fearlessly and so God puts us in circumstances and one of the circumstances that he one of the things that he does in those circumstances in terms of his outward direction is to bring us into contact with people who otherwise may not hear the gospel and thereby he adds new members to his kingdom but God not only desires to build his kingdom, but in the middle of page 13, we say, he desires a strong and caring church. Now, what does that have to do with your suffering? Well, it's this. One of the things that God wants to happen when we go through a trial is for us to do the opposite of what we're often tempted to do, and in fact often do. Namely, we recoil into ourselves. We withdraw to ourselves. Now think about it. Isn't that what we normally do? I want to sulk on my own. I want to grieve on my own. And God says, no, I made you as a social being. And I made you for relationship with others. And part of the reason I made you that way is because I made you with limitations. Unlike me, you're not infinite in your abilities. And you need the help and support of others. I made you that way. And in particular, when you go through difficulties, you need the help And support of others so rather than withdrawing yourself and saying I'm going through something and then when I get over this maybe I'll come back to church the time you need to be in church friends is the very time that you're going through that difficulty that's a time when you especially need your brothers and sisters in the Lord and God has made us for that and he certainly made the church for that purpose and that's why the example in your notes on page 13 is solitary confinement The Nazis discovered during World War II that one of the best ways to punish prisoners of war in order to extract information from them was through solitary confinement. They tried a number of ways, but they found that the most effective was indeed that method because we are creatures made by the Creator with a deep relational need. So one of the worst things that can happen to an individual is for him or her to be isolated from other people. One of the great tragedies of our society is you have a lot of lonely people, particularly elderly people who spend hours and hours, days and weeks and months alone. We were not made to be alone. God said at the beginning of human history, recorded at the beginning of your Bible in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so the Nazis found that the most effective way to punish and then extract information was to place someone in solitary confinement, because we are not naturally made for that. Now at the bottom of page 13, in the summary, it says, The Christian life is not a spectator sport. We actively participate with one another on the field of play. When a fellow player is wounded, it's up to us to spring into action in whatever way that we're able. Pain and suffering often have healthy effects upon the sufferer and others alike. As the body of Christ, when we are aware of others who are hurting, we're to respond to the wound with love, comfort, encouragement, and support. In this way, the benefits found in pain move outward into the lives of others around the sufferer, validating our need for each other. Now, this means a number of things for us as a church, and I want to take some time to rehearse those, because especially with what we're enduring now, it's my hope that our absence from one another will serve to highlight the beauty of the body of Christ, the church. So I think this is a good time to be reminded of what the church is to be. So if the summary at the bottom of page 13 is true, and it is, then it means a few things. One is we cannot be a group of people who act as though we don't have problems. We cannot be a people who are so hived off from one another and protect our privacy so jealously that we never share with one another the things with which we're struggling. If we're a church where people come together and we all act like we have it together, then the relational dynamic that's supposed to take place in the church will not happen. People will not be encouraged to open up about their issues if others don't open up about theirs. Now at Community Bible Church one of the means that we provide for that to happen is our Sunday night home groups. It's one of the reasons that we have what we call community groups. They're small groups that meet in homes on the first and third Sunday evenings of the month to foster edifying relationships. It's not a Bible study, but it's a time to get to know one another, to share our prayer requests, and yes, we also discuss application of God's word to our lives. Even during This time, when we're unable to be physically together, we're still holding our community groups. And, I might add, our children's and teens and men's and women's and our community institute classes, we're doing all of those online via Zoom. It's in that kind of context that you get to know people in a way that you simply cannot in a larger gathering. So we offer that environment in part for you to establish solid relationships so that you have a group of people in whom you can confide and on whom you can depend. Another ministry that we offer to foster relationships that can be context for spiritual growth is called Growth Partners. We prepare you, we uh, pair you with another person, a man with another man, a woman with a, another woman, teens with other teens. It's all for the purpose of learning and praying and growing together. You meet together once a week or once every other week to go over some simple material that we provide you. Now, if you want to know more about any of these ministries, community groups, growth partners, or any of the other ministries, just text CBC Connect to 97,000. CBC Connect to 97,000, and you'll get a link back. You click on that link and you'll see what we provide, and you can send us a message saying what it is you would like to know more about. If the folks in the church act like we don't have problems, then we'll never be able to help each other with our problems. And also, we need to understand that the church was never intended to be a country club for the healthy, but a hospital for the sick. Too many of our churches are, in fact, viewed as country clubs for those who have it together. One way to change our attitude on that is to borrow something that I heard about in Alcoholics Anonymous some time ago. One of the slogans that AA uses is this. You can reach out without reaching down. That is, you can reach out to other people without looking down on them. You cultivate an environment in which the ground is level, where you say, in effect, hey, we're all in this together. Hey, we're all sinners struggling with our own sin and the effects of sin that others impose upon us and with the effects of just living in a fallen world. And if we communicate that kind of mentality, then it'll tend to encourage folks to come forward with their difficulties. Now, this is perhaps a good time to remind our congregation and inform those of you listening who are not currently part of our church to remind you regarding our vision of ministry for the future. I hope this, too, will cause all of us to long for the time when we can get back together and resume our ministry to our community and to one another. I've shared over the years our church's desire to develop what I call the road to maturity, pathway to maturity for every person that God brings to us. So envision a road, and each of us are traveling on that road, and we're traveling that road toward what I'm calling maturity, which is really toward Christ-likeness, becoming like Jesus. But as we travel that road, there are a number of things that are true about each of us as vehicles on that road. One is we travel at different speeds. I mean, some people pick up things really quick and other people it takes a bit longer. Some of that is because people are in different circumstances and therefore some are able to avail themselves of more of the things that are offered for their growth and therefore they're able to advance sooner and quicker. So we're all on the road. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're on the road of becoming like Jesus, but we're going at different speeds. The other feature of that road, like I-75 or any other highway, is it has exits along the way. As you travel along, you may become tired, you may become weary, and you need to get off at an exit. Some of those exits along the highway are called rest areas. In the analogy that I'm using to progress in the Christian life, as we travel the road to Christian maturity, we have not rest areas, but restoration areas. And the idea is, you're going along, but circumstances have overcome you, and you've become weary and tired and weakened, and you need to pull off, as it were. You're not getting off the road permanently. You're coming off to be restored. And there are people there to help you in that restoration area. Now, what if you had a church of people who were ready to help with just about anything that could happen to someone on the road to maturity? As folks are beat up by life in a fallen world, Maybe it's something they've done to themselves. Maybe it's something that's been done to them, but they've been traumatized and almost are completely debilitated, and they need to be restored. Perhaps they've gone through a divorce, the loss of a loved one, financial loss because of the loss of a job. These are all crises, things that occur because of life in a fallen world. And what we want to develop here is what we call crisis ministry to folks who have to pull off for a period of time in that restoration area, and then be able to minister to them. One of the many ways that we hope to do that in the future is with our counseling center, in which trained counselors will bring the Bible to bear on the circumstances that folks in our congregation, but also in the wider community, struggle with. It's one part of our multifaceted 10-year plan. If you want a copy of that 10-year plan, again, CBC Connect to 97,000. Okay, so all Christians are on the road to maturity. We're going at different speeds. We have these restoration areas along the way when crises happen, things we inflict on ourselves, things that are done to us. We as a church want to be equipped and ready to help people when that happens. But here's the other thing about that road to maturity. There are points along the road that you know you're going to encounter before you get there, so you ought to prepare for those. This is wisdom that I'll compare to the old AAA Triptych. I think AAA still does those, but I'm sure there's much less demand these days with GPS on your smartphones. But a Triptych is something AAA would create for you if you went to their office and you said, I'm taking a trip from Detroit to South Carolina. And then they would give you a printed map, but they would highlight the best route for you to take, and they would indicate places where you're going to encounter slowdowns, construction, and so on. So if you know those obstacles are out there, it makes sense to prepare to negotiate them before you get there, right? But here's the thing that always has gotten me about our churches. We watch people go through the same stuff at the same points in life, and we act like we're surprised. I mean, everybody has traveled this road. There are certain places along the way, mile markers along the way of the road to maturity that everybody goes through, and they're going to present challenges for you. I'm not talking about now the crises that occur, the unexpected difficulties that arise like we discussed earlier. Here I'm talking about transitions that we experience just by going through the normal course of life. So you take a young couple who has a child, their first child. and If that couple does not negotiate having that first child well, that can cause difficult for the, difficulties for them down the road, can it not? I mean, many a young couple, Their marriage began to fray after they had their first child. Maybe the child was colicky, the child had difficulties, maybe physical difficulties, and it was harder than either thought it was going to be. Or maybe the child was fine, but its care so radically altered their lives that one or both were not prepared. But why are they not prepared, given that they're surrounded by a whole church full of people who have gone through it and who could and should share the collective wisdom that we've acquired? Sometimes through the mistakes we've made, so that that couple can be ready for what we know is coming. This is why our Family Life Ministry is offering the Entrusted Curriculum for Marriage and Parenting. It just started a couple of weeks ago, and I urge you to participate in those sessions on Wednesdays at 7. Again, via Zoom, you can register by sending CBC Connect to 97000. I think that's my last commercial for the whole session. Or as you go on in life, we know that people are going to encounter midlife decisions. Some of these are going to develop into what we call midlife crisis. Can't we prepare ahead of time because we know that's going to happen and prepare people for it? What about empty nest? You get a couple who's invested their lives into their children. Their children are grown. They're starting to leave. You'd be amazed at how many couples break up after the kids leave the house. Now, why is that? because they haven't been cultivating their own relationship while the kids were there because it's all been focused on the children. And we know this is a danger. We know this happens. So we can prepare you for it before it happens. Or take retirement. I haven't read the updated statistics in a while, but several years ago I read a stat that said the average person dies five years after they retire. So you've lived your whole life for retirement and then you get five years of it on average. So here's my advice don't live your whole life for retirement it's not all it's cracked up to be on average you doesn't last that long and also many people run into unexpected problems when they retire they find themselves saying all right i'm in retirement i thought it was going to be great and it was great for the first 6 months and now what do i do with myself well i've got a suggestion serve jesus give the time that you have to the lord jesus and his mission I'm thankful that we have many people at our church who do that very thing, but we can prepare you for that as a church. We've got a list of a number of these, what I call transition ministries that we all go through in life that we can, if we're wise, prepare people for on the road to maturity. So in order for that to be effective, we've got to be the kind of church that I've mentioned, the kind of church where people say, yes, I'm vulnerable, yes, I'm struggling with this, Yes, I have a crisis going on. Yes, I know that transition is coming up for me, and I may not negotiate that transition well. I need to be prepared for that. We've got to be the kind of people who are willing to say, I have those kinds of weaknesses and struggles too. Please help me. So what else can a congregation do in order to fulfill God's desire that we be a strong and caring church? Well, of course, we can pray for one another. Let me read for you what 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says about the purpose for our praying for one another. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, Now I know the language there is a little tortured so let me explain what it's saying. Paul who wrote it is saying we've been in difficulty and one of the means that God has used in order to sustain us has been your prayers. But he gives this explanation in verse 11 as to why we want many people praying. Because then many thanks will be given. Hear this, many prayers mean many thanks. The reason that we need many prayers is not what we normally think. How many times has it happened that we have something going on in our lives and a friend says, do you want me to mention it to others so that they can pray? And we say, are you kidding? Yes, of course, I need all the prayer I can get. Get as many people as you can from as far flung as you can from all over the place. Put it on Facebook, get a prayer chain going. Everybody pray for Ken because he needs as many prayers as he can get. And the idea that we have in our minds is, I need many prayers to bombard the throne of heaven so that God will finally go, hey, there's something serious going down down there. Oh my, I ought to intervene. A bunch of people are praying. But do you know how many people it takes for God to hear? Just one. The many prayers are not so that we'll bombard God and God will finally get it. The many prayers are so that when God answers that prayer, many people We'll give praise and thanks to God that's why we do that and that's why we make our prayer requests known and that's one major reason why we pray for one another let me just add as an aside sometimes I see folks uh, reaching out saying I have something going on and many folks will say I'm praying for you but sometimes I'll see folks say uh, prayers coming your way I don't know what that means prayers coming your way Prayers go one direction, they go to God. And many prayers going to God results in many thanks being given to God when he answers those prayers. We pray for one another, and we encourage one another. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 is the passage that we pastors like to use to say you need to be in church. You need to be faithful to church because it says, quote, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Well, of course, that's true. You and I need to be together in church. As soon as the pandemic is tamed, such that we can be, we need to be faithful, be in church. But the context of that passage is actually verse 24 and then into verse 25. Verse 24 tells us to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And then verse 25 says, and encourage one another. One of the reasons that we meet together is so that we can know each other and so that we can motivate and encourage each other. Let's look forward to being able to do that when we're able to open back up. But in the meantime, all of our ministries are still going in virtual form, so I strongly encourage you to take advantage of those. So the outward direction of suffering includes God building his kingdom, God building a strong and caring church, and then on page 14, it includes God ministering through us. The example there is Tom and Maria Whiteman. Their story is that they had met at Bible College and they got married. Tom got a position as a youth leader at a church, but after about six years into their marriage, Mary, Maria approached him saying she was not happy and she wanted to get out of the marriage. It turned out for six months, she had been in a relationship with someone else. She left Tom and he was stunned. He was thinking to himself, I met her at Bible College? I thought if I did the right things, things should turn out the right way. Because he had that false view that if you do it right, it turns out right, his disappointment with God led him to drop out of church for a period of time himself. But over time, through the encouragement of friends, he decided to venture back. He found a caring church. and Then he stumbled upon 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3. And that's cited for you in your notes. I quoted a portion of that for you last week at the end of our time together but verse 3 says praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God what happened to Tom was he got involved in a divorce care ministry and through that divorce care ministry he was able to share his experience with others and made an entire ministry for himself out of that. So that is God using the experience that we have had in order to minister to others who are going through similar kinds of things. Now you may not have had that kind of dramatic thing take place in your life, so how can you fulfill this? Well, the word that's translated comfort in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 is a word that's often translated encourage. The Greek word is Paraclesus, And a paraclete is one who comes alongside. It pictures somebody coming alongside and sort of putting their arm around another and simply being there with them. And so my encouragement to you, friends, is this. Even if you haven't gone through the same thing that someone else has gone through, don't then feel like you have to be the counselor with all of the right answers. A lot of times the best thing that we can do for someone is to simply be there. Be beside the person, put your arm around them, hear them out regarding what they're going through, and then be willing to pray with that person and offer yourself for anything that you can do. Every one of us can do that in the relationships that God gives us in his church, and thereby we can be used to achieve God's outward direction for suffering. So we're going to pray now, and let's ask God to help us to do that even this week, to be mindful of of the effect that we can have on others in the midst of what we're going through or what they're going through, to be used as God's instruments in the lives of those he brings in our circle of influence. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for allowing us this time to consider what your word says about some more of the reasons that you allow adversity to come into our lives your word tells us that the kinds of things we go through are of various sorts and so they do indeed come in all shapes and sizes and then your word has given us a number of reasons that you allow those trials of all shapes and sizes to come and today lord thank you for what your word says about using us as your conduits of grace into the lives of others the outward direction of suffering help me Help us as your people to recognize what all is at stake in how we handle the things that you bring into our lives. Lord, if we handle them just like the world, then there is no evangelistic light that takes place. But you have called us to be the light of the world. You have called us to be aliens and strangers in the world. You have told us, Lord Jesus, that we don't handle things the same way the pagans do, those who who are outside of your family. And so help us to be aware of that and to, and to take our, our witness to those who are watching, often imperceptibly. We don't know they're watching, but indeed they are, so that we can show the difference that the Lord Jesus Christ has made in our lives. Give us opportunities to do that, like you did the Apostle Paul, even in the midst of being under house arrest. He was given the opportunity to give the gospel, but he, he, he seized it because he was aware of it. It was uppermost in his mind. It was the most important thing for him. May that be the case for me. May that be the case for us as your people. This week, make us mindful that we are ambassadors for Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you all. Lord willing, we'll see you next week.